Last week, <clears throat> it may have not seemed very brief to you, um, as, as it often doesn't, but it was brief from where I'm standing. I, I felt that we had a very brief moment. Uh, I don't know, the sermon was probably way too long, like near 50 minutes or something, ridiculously long. But I felt, nonetheless, in my review of it, I had a conversation with one of my children in the evening about it. And, and, and trying to clarify certain pieces of it with one of the, my children about it. And, and as I thought on it, I thought, yes, it's too brief. I, 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 so, so, so last week, we mentioned just for a moment um, what, it, what it means most broadly or, or in the most general sense is what I'm trying to communicate to you. And, and for those of you who thought it was brief, this would be helpful. For those of you who thought it was not brief at all, this might not be so helpful. Um, but, but, I, but I, I want to press just a little bit more um, what it means most broadly that man, that is that you and I, mankind, collectively and also individually, each individual is made in the image of God. As I said, um, we were introducing the book of Genesis, how, how much uh, is here about morality, uh, about politics, uh, about um, uh, ethics, uh, sexuality, gender, so much is going on in the book of Origins regarding those topics. I, I don't want to move forward without, I feel some measure of responsibility ended regarding, uh, as I'm understanding the image of God and trying to impress the, the significance of uh, the image of God, of you being an image bearer, where I feel like I've transferred the burden somewhat unto you of what that means that each and every individual human being is made in the image of God. And, and, and I ended uh, last week um, because so much was done on the front end, and then I had to kind of scurry to my end. Um, and, and, and it's that scurrying where I, where I want to pick back up because I just don't want to scurry it off. I, I don't, I don't want to end that way. I, I really want you to feel the weight and the significance of what that does indeed mean and, and how Moses takes labor to help you see the significance of what that means ultimately for the treatment of your neighbor. As I was concluding last week, um, I, I simply made this reference, and, and this is where I want to start again, that what it means in its most broad or general sense that every human being is created in the image of God is that each and every human being, therefore, each and every, and then, and then I'll add distinctions to that as we move forward, but please hear me at this point as we're starting most broadly, what it means is that each and every human being shares an intimacy of relation to God. Each and every human being shares an intimacy of relation to God. So, and I, and I want to I show that just briefly, and then we'll build upon what that means. But go back where we ended, um, and, and perhaps you don't recall, Genesis 5. I, I want to bring some clarity to Genesis 5, just for one moment. Um, so, so that I can help each of us see the significance of, uh, of how it is that, that, that Moses paints a very clear picture that at, at, at most, um, uh, broadly speaking, there is an intimacy of relation of a human being to God by virtue of them being a human being. And, and, and how, do, how do we see this, this intimacy of relation 
of not just the people of God that is redeemed in Christ, but all peoples, uh, all mankind. Look at chapter 5, and again, I'll read beginning in verse 1. And this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, again, I noted to you just briefly that if we were to say, here are the generations of Adam, and as you look in the forward-going genealogies, you would pick up in verse 3 quite naturally. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, um, and then it would go into Seth. And you'd be like, yes, that makes sense. But notice what he does. And and, and this is about intimacy of relations. And, And this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Now notice verse 2 is is, uh, uh, drawing out male and female. And And so individuals, each and every individual, male and female. So, So we're back to this sense of each and every person. He created them. And then notice what he says, and he blessed them. And, and that's where we'll move in, in, uh, next week. And he blessed them, and he named them collectively man. He named them man. So, so again, we're individuals, male and female. He created them in his likeness, each and every man, each and every woman. And then he called them collectively man. So mankind, everyone. And then the text continues, when they were created, he called them man. Then it tells us, a very parallel picture, so that we might make sense of what it means to be in the likeness of God, male and female, and collectively mankind. What it means to be in the likeness of God, he gives us an analogy or a human expression to help us understand the significance of being in the likeness of God. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. And, and then to, to re-emphasize the sense of, 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 of connecting it to the way that Adam came from God. He fathered a son. And, and notice what the son was like. His own offspring is in his own likeness now. And, and then to, 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 to emphasize it, he, he adds, after his imaging. And he named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. You see, what's going on here is the intimacy that is shared between Adam and Seth. His own likeness, his own image-bearing son, And the intimacy that Adam bears to Seth and Seth back to Adam is an analogy of the intimacy of every human being that is to share with God as their father. Adam's fathering a son provides the proper analogy to God's creating of man. And the relationship that the son, Seth, ought to have to Adam, or the natural relation Seth does have to Adam. You're my father. I bear your likeness. You're my son. You bear my likeness and image. This intimacy of relation is the analogy of not just some human beings, 
some men, some women, but it is the analogy of all men and all women in relationship to their creator. You see, there's an intimacy of relation based upon imaging and likeness-bearing. So if, if, if that indeed be the case, how many in here would share in the likeness of God, would be an image-bearer? All. And if by virtue of being an image-bearer, there is an intimacy of relation, how many in here have an intimacy of relation to God? All. Just as a father does to a son and a son does to a natural father, so also does man and woman or mankind to God who created them in his likeness and in his image. So if I could summarize just this little picture into the analogy of a natural relationship between a father and a son and a father and a daughter and the heavenly father and his earthly son and the, and the heavenly father and his earthly daughter. If I could summarize it, it would be that way. To be in the image of God, most broadly speaking, and we can get more narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower, but if we stay right here at the opening onset of what does it mean to be that he created them after divine deliberation. He created man and woman together, mankind in his image. What does that essentially mean? It means that to be created in the image of God is to be a son or daughter of God. If, if I don't have time to go there. Maybe you want to jot it down and, and look at it. But if you were to go to Luke chapter 3, and we've already gone through uh, Luke's gospel. If you go to Luke chapter 3, though, you can see in verse 38, uh, it begins earlier in the text, but there's a genealogy in Luke 3. And the genealogy in Luke 3 goes from Jesus backwards. And it's interesting in verse 38 how it then concludes with Adam. It goes from Enosh, and then it goes, uh, what, maybe to Seth. I can't quite exactly recall. Perhaps I shouldn't try to draw it out without having gone there. But at any rate, and then it ends. And Adam, son of God. In what way or in what manner, at least in this manner, in that he images the Father. He is a son by virtue of having been created in the image of the heavenly father. So at minimum, we share in likeness to God in which a son bears to his earthly father. And then we share, please hear me on this, they sh- we share an intimacy of relations that goes with it. This is so important it's so important to get. That each and every individual is either a son, if he be male, or is a daughter, if she be female, of God. Now, I know there's sirens going off in your mind right now, perhaps. 
let me clarify and continue to work in narrowing. But at most broadly speaking, this is evident by virtue of being created in his image. If we were to build on this thought that indeed by way of bearing the image of God, you share an intimacy of relation to him. In addition to that, in addition to bearing his image, simply by being created as image, it means this. And, and, and now we'll look at, at uh, Genesis 2 just briefly for a moment. But in addition to being a child of God by virtue of being created in his image, it means that each and every human being has transcendent value. Again, we're not talking about particular people. We're talking about all people. And, and, and it's evidenced in the text simply by virtue of the person existing. They're here in time and space. What do we at least know about one another? What is the minimum I know about you and you know about me? That I am created in the image of God. And so are you. I know that at the base, bare minimum. I don't need to know your confession, your creed, your, your occupation. I don't need to know nothing else to know that. that. That's my bare minimum foundation of my interactions with you. I know this of you and you know that of me. Because we're here. And the only way to be here is to have been created by God. Sure, through natural generations and secondary causes. Sure. But it is ultimate causes that God gave you life. And you bear his image. And therefore you bear an intimacy of relation to him. And further, look at Genesis 2, if you will, as we add uh, uh, to the issue of, of value to each and every person. So he called them man, he called them male, he called them female, and together he called them man, as in mankind. Each and every one created in his image. And then w- what happens to that man um, uh, uh, with, our, with our first earthly father? Well, look at verse 7 of chapter 2. And we'll get to the, 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 um, the creation story uh, uh, in a little while later. But verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is where we move from the simplicity of the thought of bearing human relation by virtue of being in his image and now saying and adding to that then that you then also, by virtue of having been created, you have a transcendent value as a human being. You're immortal. This is sharing immortality with man. To, to, to give to man this sense of soul-filled that that you're more than matter and more than cell and tissue. You're a soul-filled creature. Which means that each and every human being is a soul that will live forever. 
Have, have you thought of the implications of that? Again, here, each human being, by virtue of what we see with Adam, he is breathing in him the breath of life. He is now a souled creature. Every person has a transcendent value. In other words, each and every human being that you and I will ever see on earth is a soul that will live forever. We can't get away from it. We now know that about one another, and we know that about every single man and woman, and collectively, he called them man, as in mankind. Every single person. So, so I, I, I put to you the, 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 the thoughtfulness or the ethics of this. Have you ever thought, or do you frequently think, and think of it, I know it's hard to, 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 to wrap your mind around. It is. But receive it as the word of the Lord. And be renewed by it. To think that the soul of every single person you meet will live on forever. Again, this has enormous implications of how we view, how we respond to, and how we treat others. Huge, enormous implications for how we interact with others. How we interact with one another. Because it's not just this vessel of tissue that you just need to get rid of or get around. It is a soul-filled individual created in the image of God in which this soul will live on forever. Each and every person. When our Lord was asked, um, in, in Matthew 23, you're familiar, but when our Lord was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Or what is the great commandment? Do you remember what he said? I know, I'm sure you do. He said this, you shall love the Lord your God. Now, now, now hear, hear the text, the way that it's working. Tell me the greatest commandment. Tell me the great commandment. What is it? Hear how he explains it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But it doesn't end, right? Because of this image issue. He goes on and says, and a second is like it. They correspond. He he built the bridge between love of God and love of neighbor. Love God with everything. And the second is like it. They're related. And the second is like it. Well, what is the second? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They correspond. The one of loving God corresponds to then loving neighbor. They're related. And then he concludes, just in case you think, well, maybe it's an either nor. He says, no, these two commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. 
It's not a buffet. Where you choose which topics you want and which ones you enjoy and therefore you pursue those and go sit down. You see, the way you love God, that is an image bearer. You are in relation to God. And the commandment on you as image bearer is to love God in whose likeness you are. Okay, great. No, no, no. There's other image bearers. Your neighbors. Which ones? All of them. How? By virtue of creation. They're my neighbor. And this pursuit is related to that pursuit. They work in tandem. One who pursues God will pursue the good of his neighbor. One who doesn't pursue the good of his neighbor will call into jeopardy his good confession of loving God. Well, what verse do you have for that? All the law and all the prophets? A deep body of proof. And the question that has to come to us then is, do you, do I, do we consider our fellow image bearers, not the way that Jesus described it, as loving them as ourselves, but yet even so much as to consider them at all. You see, beginning at at the thought that it says, then God said, let us make man kind. And then then Genesis 5, the the male and the female, he made them distinct, and then collectively mankind, make man in our image. What do we mean? After our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. And, And again, slow down. Well, we get it. He created him in his image. No, then he says it yet again. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female. He created them. So so when we're looking at origins and what it means to be in the image of God, creationism, that is, to believing people, to to creationists, Bible-believing, confessional-minded Christians, creationism to us then teaches an organic unity among the human race. Creationism does. So is that a joy for us? Is that a holy pursuit for us? With the same invigoration that we face the debates regarding creationism. The ethics that flow from a creationism we defend is a love of God and love of neighbor. Because they're in, teaches an organic connection between me and you. I was, uh, some of you know, I I was um, running uh, Monday. uh, And I had Owen following me on his bike. Um, And I was, uh, I, I would say for me, maybe if you were an observer, you'd disagree, but You weren't there, so I can tell the story. Um, I was running at a good clip. (laughs) Yeah, 
that's subjective, I know, but I was running at a good clip, and I was going downhill. And I don't know if you've walked the streets around here much, but the sidewalks are uh, like landmines. Um, so I was running, and as I was, like I said, getting it at a good clip, um, I looked back for just a moment uh, at Owen. And the sidewalk was one of the ones that go like this. And I kicked it, uh, and, and, you know, in full stride, I kicked the sidewalk, and I ate cement. Um, I hit the cement so, so hard. Uh, uh, my, my knees and my arm were, were tore up and, and bloodied and everything. And uh, I just remember kind of coming to on the cement, uh, thinking, oh, man, I'm on the ground. I'm hurt. Um, so I'm kind of looking over myself, and I'm wanting to get up quickly, right, because Owen's on his bike, and he's sitting there, and, like, you know, his uh, 38-year-old dad just, like, ate cement. Um, it's a little disturbing to probably see that in, in some level. And uh, so I'm thinking, i got to get up, and I think I'm okay. You know how you're going through that cadence of kind of like, is there anything like pointing in the wrong direction? Am I okay? Am I, am I, can I sit up? Am I, is this all adrenaline? Am I not okay? Am I awake? You know? And I'm doing this, and, and the moral of the story is I'm on a healing trajectory. Um, but uh, is this individual saw me coming, and he's not here today. So, so never mind, don't worry, no. This person saw me coming, and, and he was probably maybe um, 15 yards ahead of me. And as I'm running, there was, there was no question about what maybe happened to me. It, it was clear, I kicked the cement, I didn't trip, I just went straight down on my face. Um, and as I'm laying there and trying to kind of get my bearings, and I'm bleeding quite heavily down my arm and down my legs, uh, I'm laying there, and a person come, that saw me as we saw each other before I went and fell right in between us, um, he walks up and he walks around me and keeps going. Like, I'm talking, there was no way to miss it. Uh, he and I, we saw each other, and then the, the, you, uh, you know the rough dimensions of a sidewalk slab, Right? It's not like he didn't see or, or miss the fact that I was still on the one. He had to kind of maneuver to get by. But he had his earbuds in, but no device in his hands, but just couldn't have cared any less that I was laying on the ground, uh, bleeding badly and not up yet. So I got up anyway, and, and, and I was okay, and I am okay. Um, but what wasn't okay, I think, is still kind of somewhat weird to process for me, um, is, again, it was no near-life death situation. I just fell on the cement, and nonetheless, the cement hurts. That, that, that's the whole point of that story. But the lasting impact was the thought as we talked, we walked it out for maybe 200 more yards after that, and what we discussed immediately was the response of another human being to one person's plight. And I know it's trite and small. It's no big deal. But it kind of is. That where you can pass someone, and, and maybe it's this minor Pittsburgh analogy to the Good Samaritan story. I don't know, like, how many people were going to pass by me until the Good Samaritan stopped? 
Thankfully, I just was able somehow to get up. Big deal. But you see, the lack of empathy, the lack of care, the lack of, hey, do you want me to pick you up or are you just going to lay there for another day? Be like, well, I don't know. I'll give it another hour. Thanks anyway. And then he could walk off. Or maybe, maybe say, hey, do, do you have a phone? Do you want to call somebody? Did you break your leg? Are you, what, what's going on? you need help? You, he couldn't have cared any less between me and Owen and me laying on the cement and him seeing what happened. But to you and me here now on this Lord's Day, how much more should we, as Christians, I don't know that guy's confession, I don't know. He was of age, able-bodied, mid-20s, could have picked me up, probably carried me to my house. He was clearly able. But he lacked compassion or empathy. Or maybe he had both and he lacked courage to enter into somebody else's trouble. Either, neither here nor there with him, how much with us? We spoke about it for, like I said, roughly about another 200 yards. That was the topic. Not about my arm or my legs. The topic was the love of others growing cold towards others in harm, towards others in injury, toward others in plights. The lack of empathy and shared camaraderie, that there is an organic unity. How much more for us as believers, Christians, who know that indeed there is an organic unity to the human race and the human condition, how much more should we as believers treat soul-filled people, people made in the image of God, with dignity, respect, charity, and grace? How much more? A lot more. But this issue is bigger than just meeting my sidewalk needs or someone's physical or momentary needs. And and that's where I want to press just for the next few moments uh, as we move forward, just with you. I want to put these three things together. We've covered all three. And maybe you're not tracking one, two, and three. So let me conclude with one, two, three as I then move the goalposts forward on what is the non-negotiables regarding personhood. That is, when you look at every other person, every other human being, man, woman, child, as you consider yourself, here are three non-negotiables regarding personhood if you're a believer. Every person is, number one, made in the image and likeness of God. Every person. Not just the people you like, but everybody. Every individual is made in the image and likeness of God. Number two, every person shares, therefore, an intimacy of relation to God. Every person. Number three, Every person, by virtue of being made in his image and sharing his int- an intimacy of relation, each and every person has transcendent value. They are a soul-filled individual, meaning they will live on forever. But what does this mean for every single person in an ultimate sense? And that's where I want to go now, just in our last few moments together. What does it mean in an ultimate sense? 
And, and so let, let me ask the question and then give the answer. And I want you to track with me as we move towards our last few moments together because this has implications. It's not to know and to analyze. It's to know, analyze, and act. We're not just in an anthropology class, right? But, but, but we're believers on Lord's Day, grasping theology to transform our, our practice. So what does this mean for every single person, that he is in the image of God, has an intimacy of relation, and will live forever? What does that mean for that individual, and why is this thought so staggering, that they are made and created in the image of God? It means this. Here is the answer. What is every single person's ultimate sense of belonging? It is this. It means that he or she, every individual, he or she will last forever in a right or wrong relation to God. You see, the aspect of relation doesn't end. Rather, the right or wrong relation of every man, woman, and child, the right or wrong relation to God will last forever. Not that they will live on neutrally. They will live on. They are souls that will last forever, and it will last forever in right relation or wrong relation to God. But relation will last forever. Every person, what must we do? What are the ethics that flow from this? What must we, you and I, believers, this Lord's Day, what must we do because of this knowledge? What must we act out in light of this knowledge regarding God and neighbor and ourselves? Two things. Again, I could say many things of what we must do. And I hope that you're thinking on that and you meditate on that. And it shapes your thoughts going forward of how you interact with other soul-filled individuals. But I offer you this morning two. Two things we must do based on this knowledge, biblically speaking. Number one, we must be witness to the truth. I mean that everyone needs Jesus. It means that he or she will last forever. Got it. They're soul-filled individual. And they will live on forever in relation to God. Got it. By virtue of creation. And it means that they will live on forever in a right or wrong relation to God. I get it. That will last forever. What I ought to do in time. Be witness to the truth. That this is who they are. And this is who you are. This is who we all are. Again, I mean that every person, man, woman, and child, by virtue of being here as image bearers in relation to God, needs Jesus Christ. Everyone. And, and as a Christian minister and, and a Christian uh, confessing body, we isolate Jesus, not as a, a other or a transcendent belonging, but to Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. Everyone needs him because he is the only means to eternal joy and right relation to God. He is the only means. Son, daughter, Paul says, but there are sons of disobedience. 
They need right relation. To whom must they obey? Jesus Christ. Again, please hear that it's not an issue of relating, but an issue of relating rightly through Jesus Christ. John 14, 5, you you know this passage. Thomas said to him, and and John 14, he's talking about going away, right? And and he's saying, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to prepare, and I'm going to be away from you. I go back to the Father. But don't don't, don't fret. Don't worry. I've overcome the world that you're going to live in. I've overcome it. And I'm leaving, but I'll be back. And Thomas is saying, well, wait, we want to go. Well, you can't come. Well, how are we going to know the way? How are we to know the way to where you are, to where the Father is? How will we know? You say, I'm, you're going, and, and, and we know the way. How will we know the way? Jesus said to him, verse 5, I am the way. and the truth, and the life. It's me. How will I know the way? How will any soul-filled individual know the way if they know him who is the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus finishes it with this universal negative. Meaning back to every man, every woman, and every child, all mankind collectively, and then broken down individually. He offers this universal negative: no one, as in not any one person, no one ever. There, there's not a possibility outside of me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one person, no one individual, no man, no woman, and no child comes to the Father where I'm going except through me. No one. And it's not a bullish, dogmatic statement. It's a loving truth of compassion and offer to those who already relate. You can relate rightly because you do already relate. You are his offspring. Secondly, I said there are two things as we kind of move towards our conclusion. There's two. I said, number one, we must, if Christians who, who recognize that creation teaches an organic unity of the human race, what must we do? Be witness to the truth. And number two, we mustn't be deceived. We mustn't be deceived. What I mean is that by that is, What lies beyond, that is for the soul at rest, for the soul that is broken from the body, the soul that moves on to the next dimension, it is a terrible reality. What lies beyond without Jesus. And I, and I mean each one of those, it, it's a it, terrible reality. It's not that we're just shaped from medieval theology that got it wrong about some creation of the idea of hell from Dante's Inferno. 
It's poor critique. Jesus spoke evidently from the Gospels. Evidently. You can, you can search it and read it. Jesus spoke more of hell than any other writer or preacher in the Bible. You can graphically see it when we saw it in Luke 16. That he gave a window into the nether world, into the next dimension. A man who had transferred there, who had been treated poorly in time. You remember, he begged to eat at your table. Oh, he's going through your dumpster out back. And the man in purple walked by. He was a sharp-dressed man of this age, you recall? And he had a dumpster diver out back. And he didn't care about him at all. And then when the netherworld came, he said, send that servant Lazarus over that he might dip his finger in his tongue. Give me some. And Jesus, do you remember what he said to him? He can't. Why not? There's a chasm fixed between you and me. Don't you remember the warning of Luke 16? You had your time in age. You had what you needed, what you wanted. You had your good things now, just like you wanted them. And Lazarus had nothing. And he has his good things now. They both lived on in relation to God. Neither one was annihilated. And it's not from Dante, it's from the Bible. Hell is a terrible reality. What lies beyond without Jesus is real and terrible. We must want people to avoid it. And I say we as in Christians. We must want people to avoid it. Revelation 21, 8. And again, I could go to Luke 16 or Matthew 25, or we could go through a number of gospel passages. But just let me give you a small little summary of the statement of the reality of hell from the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, 8. Just hear this comment about the age that is to come. He says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. So, so again, if you were to think of it, those without faith. And the manifestation of what that faithless life brings. This, 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 this ethically flows from a life that is faithless. Less, void of faith. All, he says, their portion, those apart from faith that terminates on Christ, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, a dimension of dying. If we do believe this, by virtue of creation, that the soul by God will live forever, if we believe this, I urge you and myself that we must believe this not just concerning ourselves, but also concerning our neighbor. I conclude with you these thoughts from C.S. Lewis. Perhaps you've uh, read the sermon manuscript or you've uh, read the book. 
It was originally a sermon that C.S. Lewis delivered at Oxford. Uh, I think the year was 1941. And the, and, and the sermon has then become the book, The Weight of Glory. I conclude with you his thoughts. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that, not on, that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. There are no ordinary people. Listen to Lewis's thought. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life to ours is like that of a life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, whom we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real. And costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would help us care in a genuine way that is informed by the truth of the Bible. That fellow men and women are soul-filled creatures that will live forever. That my neighbor will live forever. We will live either in a right or a wrong relationship to you. But live forever, he will. I pray that you would transform our ethics closer and closer to obedience. That care and love of God would be care and love of neighbor. That you would do so in a hurry. That we would truly manifest your love and your care for fellow image bearers, while despising behavior, seek to care for the soul-filled individual that is a part of it. 
Help us to do so. Help us to take serious our responsibility to be your people in this age that's passing away. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.